This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Peripheral neuropathy is a relatively common neurologic condition we frequently see in primary care. Some patients may describe the symptoms as paresthesias and just a minor nuisance. However, others may have very painful dysesthesias. Since some peripheral neuropathies are reversible, we need to know when to suspect a peripheral neuropathy, how to evaluate patients who have them, and know a little bit about the possible treatment options. We're going to be discussing peripheral neuropathies with Dr. Julie Curry, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Julie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. I think we're going to, since this is such a huge topic, let's limit our discussion on polyneuropathies rather than mononeuropathies. Uh, That could be another equally long discussion if we want. But why don't we start by asking you to describe how peripheral neuropathies are classified? It is very complex um, and it's a good place to start, actually. So I will often use the term peripheral neuropathy and polyneuropathy interchangeably. For me, those terms are interchangeable. And for most people in my profession, we use the terms interchangeably. So we classify peripheral neuropathies generally by the pattern of involvement. So as you pointed out, mononeuropathies are a different world. Those are neuropathies of a single nerve. When we use the term peripheral neuropathy, what we really mean is some type of generalized disorder of the peripheral nerves. And the peripheral nerves are essentially the nerves after they've exited the plexi, so the lumbosacral and brachial plexus. So it's some type of generalized disorder of the nerves that involve the limbs, and they typically affect the longest limbs first. So the most common type of peripheral neuropathy is a what will sometimes be referred to as a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. And when we use the term peripheral neuropathy or polyneuropathy, that is generally what we mean is a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. Other types of neuropathies would be those that involve isolated types of nerve fibers, perhaps only sensory fibers or only motor fibers or those that are asymmetric, but those are much less common. So that's, that's kind of the most simple way to classify peripheral neuropathy. So you mentioned that these typically involve the longest extremities first. Is that why most people usually describe symptoms early on primarily in their feet rather than in their fingers? Correct. Yes. So most conditions that cause peripheral neuropathy are going to affect the longest nerves in the body first. And in fact, if they don't affect the longest nerves in the body first, that would be atypical. That is something that maybe should have a a closer look at. So most peripheral neuropathies affect the nerves in the feet and then progress proximally. So they'll go from the toes or the balls of the feet up the leg uh, as it gets worse. And generally when they hit about the level of the knee is when you may start or the patient may start to experience symptoms in their fingertips Hmm. because that's about the same equivalent nerve length. Mm -hmm. As primary care providers, what should we be alert for when patients describe these? How do patients describe symptoms of a peripheral neuropathy? Most patients will describe what we call the positive symptoms. So extra sensations. So tingling, prickling, burning, electrical shocks, pins and needles. Sometimes people will say they feel like they're walking on pebbles or they feel like their sock got balled up under the bottom of their foot. 
So those are the most common symptoms that we hear with peripheral neuropathy. And most commonly it affects both feet and it generally progresses quite slowly. That would be the most common history you would get. Yeah, I've had some describe it as a numbness, and I never know what they mean by that. So I always have to ask them, you know, what, what do you mean by numbness? And in fact, they're actually describing paresthesias, not lack of sensation. Correct. And sometimes what they'll say is, you know, it feels numb, but it also feels tingly. Isn't that funny? And I say, people will often say that it feels like there's less sensation, but at the same time, different new sensations that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. How often are these progressive? It depends on the cause. The majority of peripheral neuropathies are likely to be progressive. The times when they're not progressive may be because it's related to a toxin of some sort, most commonly something like chemotherapy. So something where there's an exposure that's toxic to the nerves, the neuropathy gets worse over a period of time, but then that exposure ends. And so the neuropathy doesn't progress. Mm What more likely happens is that all neuropathies are progressive, but they are often so slowly progressive that the progression is really marked over a period of years. That's the most common pattern. All right. What are some of the more common causes of a peripheral neuropathy when we find one? I know there's a lot of patients that we look and we can't find anything, but what are some common causes when one is identified? The most common cause probably in the United States is going to be either diabetes mellitus or impaired glucose tolerance associated with the metabolic syndrome. Um, So that will be most likely. Sometimes we see nutritional deficiencies. So B12 deficiency, less common to see like a B1 or a B6 deficiency or excess cause neuropathy, but those can occur. Sometimes conditions like uh, hypothyroidism, while rare, can cause neuropathy because it's rare that someone has really long-running untreated hypothyroidism, but it can cause paresthesia. So sometimes patients can have paresthesia in the absence of having objective nerve damage or injury. Otherwise, medications would probably be the next chemotherapy, the next most common cause of peripheral neuropathy. Mm The other thing that I will sometimes point out is patients are often started on medications that can impair B12 um, absorption. So sometimes we identify a cause like impaired glucose tolerance or diabetes, and then they're put on a medication that is used to treat that metabolic disorder, but then that medication impairs B12 absorption. So then they may unfortunately end up with a second cause for their neuropathy. So I generally say it's good to look at the common conditions B12 deficiency and and diabetes being the most common and make sure that just because there's one explanation, that a second possible explanation isn't also lurking underneath the surface. I wanted to clarify something you said about a diabetic neuropathy. And is it true that even patients without severe diabetes can get this? I always thought of it as kind of a late complication of diabetes, but uh, that may not be the case. It's a good question because it is an area, I think, where there is a little bit of disagreement in the peripheral nerve world. There are those who believe more, as you do, that it seems to be more of a late complication of diabetes, but there is growing literature to suggest, and it's pretty compelling that patients are diagnosed with diabetes and neuropathy at the same time, and sometimes it may be more related to metabolic factors. So we're definitely seeing a linkage of metabolic syndrome with peripheral neuropathy that affects what we term the small nerve fibers. Mm -hmm. Not to get too uh, in the weeds on on how we classify nerves, 
but there are small nerves that have a lot of pain signaling. And then there are the larger nerves which have sensory signaling and motor function. And often the earliest neuropathies are those that involve those small nerve fibers. And we definitely see a linkage of metabolic syndrome with those types. And I think that's where you can see people who are pre-diabetic or have impaired glucose tolerance or newly diabetic actually having symptoms suggestive of peripheral neuropathy. Okay. So what questions should we be asking our patients when we suspect they may have a neuropathy? I think what's important and what I teach um, in the medical school here is we want to ensure that this person's symptoms align with what we suspect. So we want most peripheral neuropathies, as I said, start in the feet and they're symmetric. And what I didn't say is that they also generally involve sensory fibers first. So we want to know, A, what, what are their symptoms? Do they have lack of sensation is sometimes what I'll use instead of numbness. Do they have extra sensations, the tingling, the prickling, the burning, the pain? And how did it begin? How did it progress? Do they have motor weakness? Is it symmetric? Do they have other constitutional symptoms associated with it? Because if it's symmetric, slowly progressive, sensory predominant, you're going to be likely correctly diagnosing somebody with a peripheral neuropathy if they meet kind of all those features. But if it's asymmetric, if it's motor predominant, if it's not length dependent, so it didn't start in the feet and then progress up, if it perhaps started in the hands, it's very rapidly progressive over a period of a few weeks. Those would be atypical features that would suggest or prompt a different type of evaluation. Okay. And how about physical exam? What should we be doing for physical findings in neuropathies? It can be really tricky because I don't think everybody carries their tuning fork around like the, neuro <laughs> like the neurologists do. So what I recommend is that you at least are able to look at strength, you know, strength in the feet, strength in the, in the legs to make sure strength is intact. Some type of sensory examination can be helpful. You can do a monofilament exam, but it's maybe not the most sensitive. Certainly vibration sensation, as I, as I joked, is going to be the most sensitive. But at least if you've done, you know, some form of a sensory test and then a reflex exam is excellent too, because we also have to consider the possibility that sometimes when people are coming in more with the lack of sensation type of numbness in their legs, that occasionally, especially if they have gait impairment, they're reporting some changes in the way they walk, it could be due to some other process like a spinal cord disorder. And that therefore I do encourage a reflex examination just to make sure the reflexes aren't increased. Even if you're maybe not the best or the most comfortable with reflexes, you know, brisk reflexes are usually a bit more easy to elicit. That's generally what I would recommend. And it, okay. and it shouldn't take more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. In terms of laboratory tests, we certainly want to uh, rule out diabetes, but what else should we be checking for laboratory studies? I tend to be a little bit more of a minimalist when it comes to a patient with a distal symmetric, chronic, slowly progressive polyneuropathy. So I will generally recommend we look at blood counts, we look at liver and kidney function to make sure that those all appear to be fine and are not, isn't sign of some systemic disorder that could be going on. And then in addition, I will generally check a B12. Low normal B12s can be associated with neuropathic symptoms. And so even if the B12 is technically normal, but it's on the lower range of normal, I will generally always check a methylmalonic acid. And it's helpful to see that CBC to know that there's no anemia there um, when you're checking the B12. 
And then the uh, hemoglobin A1C, some neurologists would really advocate strongly that if that's normal, that you get a two hour glucose tolerance test, because as we discussed, impaired glucose tolerance or very early or mild diabetes also is associated with uh, developing peripheral neuropathy. And then the one kind of thing that I always encourage people not to miss is that neuropathies can be associated with monoclonal gammopathies. And while that is uncommon and monoclonal gammopathies increase in frequency and occurrence as people get older, a serum protein electrophoresis um, is definitely something that I always get as a screening, as a screening study. And then as a neurologist, I will go a few steps extra and usually also get an immunofixation, although I know that's not available in all institutions. Okay. I've had, I'd say the majority of patients present with symptoms that are pretty easy to diagnose as a peripheral neuropathy. Do they all need EMG, nerve conduction studies? The answer is no, they, they don't. I think if you have a patient who has, as we pointed out, a very classic presentation, they have a sensory predominant, slowly progressive course, they don't have anything to suggest a radiculopathy. So they don't have significant back pain or radicular pain. They don't have significant motor deficit. They don't have significant functional impairment other than apart from perhaps, you know, discomfort, pain related to the neuropathy. It's not asymmetric. It's not motor predominant. So one of those very classic um, phenotypes and you do labs and perhaps you identify, you know, a B12 deficiency, an EMG is not always necessary because it's not always going to change what's done for that patient. If there are features that are atypical, however, I do encourage that EMG because it allows us to confirm the suspected diagnosis so that we don't spend our energies looking for an alternative diagnosis when it was perhaps maybe just a, a slightly atypical presentation of a common condition. Mm -hmm. I have had a few patients who present with a what seemed like a very classic distal sensory peripheral neuropathy and ended up with an EMG, but it was negative. So what's going on there? Yeah, it does happen. Part of it has to do with limitations to the EMG testing. So as people get older, we do see normal deterioration of the nerve responses in the feet. And so what we are testing is we're testing sensory nerves in the feet. And so what that means is that we have some limitations in picking up milder sensory impairment in individuals who are older frequently. For example, the nerve that we most commonly test in the lower leg for sensation is actually in the middle portion of the calf. Well, if the patient has symptoms that are restricted to the toes or the distal half of the foot, but we're only testing sensory function in the calf, the test may not be sensitive enough to pick it up. Now we do test motor nerves in the feet and we do test sensory nerves in the bottom of the feet in those who are under 60. But the problem is, is that as the person ages, we do lose some of our sensitivity in testing those people. Now, in those cases, because it has happened to me also, if the picture is fits, if the exam fits, the history fits, that doesn't deter me from making that diagnosis. So I've heard the term small fiber peripheral neuropathy. What, what exactly does that mean? Small fiber neuropathy is a neuropathy that involves the smallest nerve fibers, which are unmyelinated. And the unmyelinated nerve fibers are those that cannot be tested with our EMG testing. There is loss of sensitivity in EMG testing when someone has restricted small fiber neuropathy. 
So if their neuropathy only affects those smaller unmyelinated fibers, the EMG could be normal. And that doesn't mean that they don't have peripheral neuropathy. It means that they have a likely a peripheral neuropathy restricted to the small nerve fibers. And those are generally the more painful neuropathies. Okay. Let's talk about treatment. I have to admit that patients who present with a peripheral neuropathy, that treatment options have been kind of disappointing. I don't often have a lot to offer my patients if they don't have a B12 deficiency. What kind of treatment is available for some of this? Yeah, it is It is somewhat disappointing. I agree. And there has been a lot of work and studies over the years, but it hasn't really resulted in, in a huge shift in how we treat peripheral neuropathy. So there are three classes of medications that are commonly used to treat peripheral neuropathy. And this is pharmacologic treatment, to be clear. So for symptomatic relief of peripheral neuropathy, we have the medications that I still call them anti-epileptic drugs, even though they're not really used to treat epilepsy. And those would be the uh, pregabalin and gabapentin. Those have good uh, data for efficacy and the number needed to treat is fairly low. So those seem to work quite well. Side effect profile is fairly good when one considers it's you know being used to treat pain. The tricyclic antidepressants remain an option. I do not like to use them as much in my older patients because of some of the anticholinergic side effects. So cognitive side effects, sedation, and for some urinary retention, dry mouth. And then we have the class of SNRIs, so serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, and duloxetine and venlafaxine being the two drugs there. So that really hasn't changed a ton, I would say, in the last five to six years. Those medications are generally what are utilized for um, pharmacologic management of peripheral neuropathy. Patients will often ask about alternative options. So some of my patients don't really want to take a prescription drug for peripheral neuropathy. And some of them don't like that. It's a, you know, the term band-aid is used a lot, that we're not fixing anything. You're just putting a band-aid on it. So there is some education that, that has to go into play there. But for some of those patients, I will recommend a trial of alpha lipoic acid. It's an antioxidant. It has only really been studied in diabetic neuropathy and the data is not, has never been reproduced, but it does appear potentially to provide some pain relief. And because it's an antioxidant, some people feel a little bit more comfortable in trying, in trying something of that nature. I'm sure you see more peripheral neuropathy than I do since that's uh, your job, but I have to admit, I don't think in 40 years I have seen a case where it has been truly reversible. Do you see reversible peripheral neuropathies in your practice? It's a good question. I would say probably not. There have probably been some cases. However, they don't come back to tell me they, <laughs> that their neuropathy <laughs> went away. So no, you're right. Even when we call things reversible, I think what we really mean is they're maybe treatable or there's something that we can halt the progression. We can identify an etiology and halt the progression. But, you know, in a case of something like a diabetic peripheral neuropathy, you know, once the horse has left the barn, as they say, you can't get it back. So the times when we see reversal are more likely related to, to toxic exposures. So chemotherapy related neuropathies that are perhaps on the milder end with more sensory symptoms. I've seen a few patients with B12 deficiency caught early, mild symptoms, normal EMG that, that reversed. But for the most part, I try to, to counsel the, my patients that lack of progression is still an improvement in the natural course. We still had a positive intervention 
because we were able to stop the progression in identifying the cause. But you're right, I, re- truly reversible, I just don't think is likely to be uh, achievable for the vast majority. So as with many other neurologic conditions, damaged nerves just don't heal very well. Correct. They don't heal very well, or even if they heal well, they still hurt. <laughs> so asymptomatic, I guess, maybe is, is, not always, um, is not always something that we can achieve. Yeah. Well, we've been discussing peripheral neuropathies with Dr. Julie Curie, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Julie, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.